Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift of the family. And we know that, that childhood and children and the family are under attack. And as we discern the errors and deceptions that are going on, may we be drawn more closely and, and, and love more fervently your picture, your blueprint that you've given to us for our families. And as we, as we take a look at uh, these, these uh, as Ephesians 5.11 says, to expose the fruitless works of darkness, may we have discernment given by you, not from our own insights, but from you alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The three biggest history, the three biggest events in the history of redemption, if you were in the session down in the commons on Monday, you've heard this, but I want to repeat it because it is fundamental, it is foundational as far as the way we understand the role of children and the family in the last days. The three biggest events in the history of redemption are, uh, you, you, could, you could bring up a fourth and a fifth, I'm sure, but, but three of the biggest are, are the Exodus experience, the first coming of Christ, and the second coming. This is the history of redemption, God bringing his people out of Egypt, giving them the law on Mount Sinai, bringing them into the promised land, the whole Exodus story. The first coming of Christ, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. That's the climax of it all, right? Where all of our sins were paid on the cross. Then, the time we live in now, the time of the judgment which precedes the second coming of Christ. These three biggest events all have something in common. At each of these points in history, we notice that the children are playing a key role. First of all, you have little Miriam save Moses' life so that Moses, baby Moses, in that little basket boat, then can grow up and become the leader of his people, chosen by God. Miriam played a key role, didn't she? At the first coming of Jesus, it is the children, and only the children, not the Pharisees, who are shouting the praises of Jesus in the temple when he comes in on a donkey into Jerusalem. They're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Where the Pharisees are saying, keep those kids quiet. God chose the children each time. So do you expect also in the last days for the children to play a key role? Yeah, there, there are quotes all over the place in, in Adventist home and elsewhere saying, watch for this pattern to be fulfilled in the last days, just as it was in the time of the Reformation with the children playing a key role in going forth, endued by the Spirit of God, proclaiming His truth. Now, if the devil knows this, of course, he's going to try to counter it, isn't he? What happened with Pharaoh and with Herod? During those first two events, do you remember? The children, there was, a, there was a death decree. There was an edict to destroy them. Now, today, there's an even worse tendency, and that is to attack the spiritual nature of children in their minds. But there's also a physical attack upon children in our day today. And it's something that's not talked about quite as much because it tends to become a political football. But I don't bring it up for that reason. It is important for us to, to take a look at this. Did you know that one in five children in America today who is conceived in the womb in this protective environment that God has created for the nurturing of this child and his prenatal influences, one in five unborn children are aborted in our, in our society today. One in five. And, and I bring this up to show the great controversies going on in front of our very eyes, but never, never, never to lay a burden of guilt on anybody who has gone through that and has, has, has committed that sin. Jesus Christ says he has paid every sin at the cross. So don't let the devil, the accuser, come and say, yeah, you're rotten, you're such a horrible sinner, God can never forgive you. No, 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 that's not true. Chief of sinners, though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. So the topic is not a, just a political football or a social issue. It's a very personal issue for a lot of people. But in the same sense, it's a big 
theological context issue with a great controversy going on, just as Herod did it, Herod did it, just as Pharaoh did it, you see the deaths of so many children today with the attack on the family beginning even prenatally. Now the culture is tending these days to really prop this up as like something to celebrate. There was a big controversy last year with a bunch of hidden camera videos and, and you might have seen this thing about these, you know, Planned Parenthood getting in trouble with, um, you know, bargaining for fetal tissue in, in exchange for donations and so on. Well, after that, the, the, the people who were promoting the idea that abortion is an acceptable thing, they went out there with their, what they called hashtag, this is like Twitter terminology, hashtag shout your abortion, where they were celebrating and promoting it and saying this is such a good thing and it makes us free and it makes us have something to cheer. And then I saw an unbelievable thing. I didn't actually watch this because I don't watch television, but I saw this reported on a, on a news report and read the script from this TV show. The TV show is called Scandal. I'd never heard of it. I don't know if you watch this. I hope we don't spend a lot of our time watching worldly things or any of our time. But this was right around Christmas. And it actually featured in this drama, this fictional presentation, the, the, the main character, the woman going through a, a procedure of an abortion. And, and it wasn't to, you know, make people think and question it and say, you know, is this... It was very much to promote it. And the song that was playing was, of all songs, Silent Night, about the newborn baby Jesus, Right? And then the voiceover of her father appears in the background as a narration while she's having the procedure done, and he goes like this. This is what this is about. The family, public enemy number one, right? Family is a burden, he says, a pressure point, soft tissue, an illness, an antidote to greatness. You think you're better off with people who rely on you, depend on you, but you're wrong because you will inevitably end up needing them, which makes you weak, pliable, family doesn't complete you, it destroys you. Have you ever heard of worse lie than that in your entire life? What absolute garbage. We know from the Bible, God created the family to be this magnificently important message to the onlooking universe. There was a controversy between Christ and Satan in heaven, and, and Jesus begins creating this world, demonstrating his power. In six days, he can just speak things into existence, totally disproving Satan's claim to be able to be in the seat of God. I don't think so. But then he wants to prove more than his power. He wants to prove his character. And when he proves his character, he says, let us make man in our image. You see, God is three, right? And so he creates, it's not good for Adam to be alone. He creates Adam and Eve, and he says, the two shall be one. Just like hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one, yet he is in us. Let us make man in our image. And then Adam and Eve, with the ability to procreate, to serve and to bless a little innocent, helpless child, this is the character of God painted for the onlooking universe. It's a powerful image, and this is why Satan's so angry about it. This is why he wants to snuff these lives out before they ever see the light of day and celebrate it and tear down the family. And it's our job as the people of God to lift up the family. How about this one? Uh, this, this was a, uh, another hidden camera video thing where, you know, we have a lot of modern science. It's not the 1970s anymore where they, they could say, you know, it's just a blob of tissue and so on and so forth. But there was an um, uh, abortion advocacy group where the speaker got up to a bunch of different providers for Planned Parenthood and others who were practitioners of, of this practice. And they said, basically, we have to kind of change the discussion. Let me, let me share with you just the segments of this speech that this woman gave at this um, abortion advocacy conference. She said, ignoring the fetus is a luxury of abortion activists and advocates. You can't ignore the fetus, right? Because the fetus is the marker of how well how good of a job you did, right? If you don't account for all the parts, 
and, don't look, and you don't look carefully, you may be setting someone up for infection or hemorrhage or whatever. The fetus matters clinically to us, not to mention that women know what's in there. You know, about two-thirds, over 60% of women are already mothers. Women who go for this procedure are already mothers. And the remainder don't want to be mothers. They're not stupid. They know what's in there. I actually think it should be less about denying the reality of those images, of, of the, the fact that this is a, li a life, and more about acknowledging that, yeah, that's kind of true. So given that, we actually see the, the fetus the same way. So in other words, folks who believe this practice to be a, a, a moral thing and those who, who, who question this and say this is not right, we actually view the fetus the same way. And given that, we might actually both agree, listen to this, that there's violence in here. Let's just give them all, it's violence. It's a person. It's killing. Let's just give them all that. And then the more compelling question is, why is this the most important thing I can do with my life, performing abortions? I don't think it needs to be about correcting facts. I think it needs to be about moving the conversation to a different place. What an admission. You hear this now from the side of things that this is an okay you know, thing of liberation for women, and they're saying, you know what, we kind of have to grant the point to those who are our critics that this is a life. This is a human life, and we are engaging in an act of violence and killing, but now we must ask ourselves, why is this the most important thing we can do with our lives? So it's no longer really a debate of over those things. And again, I don't bring this up to make this into some political issue, but as Christians, we have to be able to stand for what is right, though the heavens may fall, amen? And we have to be able to question and point out the evils of our age and, and call sin by its right name. Now, how about this one? Salon Magazine took it to a whole new level. They are now promoting from what you might call the, the secular progressive left. It says, I'm, not a I'm a pedophile, not a monster. It's actually an article written by a self-proclaimed, open, out-of-the-closet pedophile who says, this is just my sexual orientation. Now, he says that I, I ought not practice it, but you need to accept me for who I am and that this is just my particular orientation. So, you remember those, like, kind of people that you thought maybe have been a little bit out there when they said, if, if you legalize, you know, gay marriage and we go down this road, you're going to end up with this, 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 and these are going to be normalized. And sometimes I'd hear that and I'd be like, really? Are people really going to go that far? Yeah, they are going that far now. And not just that, but um, you know that it's not just the secular progressive uh, humanists, but within the Roman Catholic Church itself, bishops do not have to report child abuse, Vatican says. Boy, is there an attack on the family in our world from every angle or what? This is a UK independent reported a document that was published by the Vatican giving directives to their bishops just to handle things in-house. Don't, don't report these sorts of uh, abuses. Now, the, the, the numbers, by the way, one estimate that was compiled in a study that was done is that literally 100,000 American children were abused by priests in recent years. 100,000. Now, America only has 6% of the world's Catholics. So... If you, if you multiply that out, I mean, we're looking at huge, huge numbers of, of, of hundreds of thousands into the millions of people, of children who were abused by priests, and they sweep it under the rug, right? And by the way, the, the current pope it came out and admitted, I'll give him credit for this, he, 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 he said, he admitted that there are 8,000, upwards of 8,000 pedophiles still serving within the church today, the Catholic church today. And I hope that they're on the march to, uh, to remove those from the world.
Now, by the way, from, from, the, from service and, 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 uh, in, in the church, of course, but our, our world hasn't always been this insane. There was a time where there were a lot of distortions for sure, but they didn't quite get away with this flagrant of in your face, like we're killing people and I'm a pedophile and we're going to let these 8,000 run around and not purport it. I mean, this is kind of a crazy world we live in in 2016. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Like when I'm reporting on these things, I'm like, it, it, this, this sounds crazy. Like I have a hard time even saying it because it sounds so unbelievable. Um, but, but do you remember back in the day, did anybody come from this day? And they, you know, this is before my time. You remember these shows, right? And not that these were good and not that we should go back and watch I Love Lucy and she's lying to her husband and her spiritualism and all that. But back in the 50s and 60s, the role of the father and the traditional family at least wasn't being torn down everywhere you go. Uh, there, there was actually a show called Father Knows Best, which I find, you know, that, how politically incorrect would that be today? I mean, they actually had a show and got away with that. Andy Griffith, you know, this, this father-son relationship. And so it, it, it wasn't quite as uh, flagrantly anti-family as it is today. But then something happened. I, I love to study the history. Let me share you some of this history. What happened after that period was the emergence of the 1960s and 70s feminist movement, right? And of course, we, we love the idea of good, true, progressive ideas like the Apostle Paul put out there where he says, there's neither male nor female in the kingdom of God, nor slave nor free, nor Jew nor Greek. In other words, everybody's an equal child of God and we have the same access to salvation. But does that mean that we are no different? No, of course not. In the time in the 60s and 70s, particularly the 1970s, the idea was put out there that there is no difference between male and female other than anatomy. That there are, there are no fundamental distinctions between the two. And so they, they dreamed for a genderless future. And they advocated for this and they said, we want to, in order to make it equal, we have to make women exactly like men and vice versa. And so you know what happens? What, what happens is in the 1980s and 90s, the sitcoms start changing. Do you remember this? Did anybody watch this happen? I mean, I was so little. I was a little kid in the 80s. But, but you come to Married with Children. What is the father promoted to be like in that show? Just as an example. He's a total moron, right? And he's the butt of all the jokes. Same with uh, the two-man Tim, the two-man Taylor. You know, everybody's always laughing at the dad, and he doesn't know what he's doing. And then it got really crazy with the cartoons, with Homer Simpson and um, I don't remember his name, but these guys, um, family guy is what they called that. Yeah, it's kind of like the fam this family guy. I never really thought about how, how uh, that's a subtle attack on the family right there with the title. But uh, you see the difference, how that changed in our culture today. And so the disrespect and the tearing down of biblical masculinity is part and parcel of this effort to tear down the family and destroy the family. Now, if you were to think of like the most like from a worldly perspective, the most manly part of society has got to be the guys that are like, you know, strapping on the fatigues and they're, you know, going and fighting and dying for their country, right? And I don't mean to promote militarism. I, I love our Seventh-day Adventist non-combatancy tradition. But as, as a cultural angle on this, I could not believe what I was seeing when you got these tough guys, right? And they're going into their ROTC. Brace yourselves, okay? They required cadets in the army to strap on red high heels as a part of this compliance training, you know, mind warping program. And they said, you have to all walk a mile in red high heels. I go, what in the world is going on in our culture today? And, and it, as it, it got even weirder in San Diego. You know who these guys are. What do you call them? The founding? 
fathers. But San Diego municipal government put out a directive saying, do not refer to them as the founding fathers anymore, because that might offend people who don't identify as one or the other of the genders. And this is like making things gender related. And we have to do away with all... What? They're the founding fathers. They were men, right? I mean, that's not something that's really a controversial point. But we make big issues out of this. And then what happens? What happens when you degrade masculinity in the popular culture is you get a new, create, a new creature who has emerged upon the world. You might call this like devolution, I guess. He's called passive man. And he descends into his man cave, right? Where no longer are we the leaders and the forebearers of great movements and of our families and the priests of our homes. We have a scourge and an absolute viral uh, tendency among men in our culture to just check out. To become totally passive. To watch the game. To celebrate other masculine achievements like this hyper-masculinity that appears in sports. So then we have no understanding of what it be, means to be a, a husband and a father in true masculinity, and we end up in total passivity our, in ourselves, celebrating competitive hyper-masculinity and thump your chest, I'm going to beat you mindset in sports. Do you see how this is all sorts of messed up from every angle? The devil really has his finger on the pulse here, ruining many, many lives and families. Now, a sociologist looking at this from a secular perspective, his name is Philip Zimbardo, and he looked at this and said, men are just falling. Young men are failing and becoming passive, becoming socially inept, becoming uninterested in, 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 in courting young ladies and, and living normal male lives. He said, what's going on with the men? He identified video games, pornography, and, and just excessive use of media as, as some of the big causes of this. But then, I, I've shared that in Media on the Brain, but what I want to share with you more is he, there was a little survey that was done after his TED Talk, Philip Zimbardo's TED Talk on the sociological issues, and they asked him a little survey, uh, why do you think so many young men are struggling to become you know, strong masculine male leaders. And I don't mean that in like a, you know, a sort of a backwards sense of, you know, drag the, drag the um, caveman woman around by her hair and stuff. And we want to be careful not to be imbalanced with this sort of thing. But, you know, secular people are looking at, wait, men aren't quite the, what they weren't, what, the way, what they used to be. What has happened? You know what the number one answer was on their survey? It was conflicting messages from media institutions, parents, and peers about acceptable male behavior. 63% of people who took that survey said, we're just getting a whole lot of confusing messages. The culture is mind manipulating people's viewpoint on this sensitive issue. Especially, think about little kids now growing up and they see this as this person, as the runner up for time person of the year. Now time person of the year is somebody usually, you know, who's, who's making major you know, political movements or you know, something like this. And, and this is a a person who took an act of having sex reassignment surgery and was glorified as a hero for it. Speaking of um, Caitlyn Jenner, um, what was the original name? Bruce, thank you. I try not to follow this stuff too closely because if all you do is obsess on what's going on in the culture and you don't study your Bible, you find yourself in the muck and mire of confusion yourself, right? But we've got to really understand what it is that our kids are being hit with because we want to correct it. We want to say this is the true way. In fact, what is the true way with regard to this? In Deuteronomy 22 verse 5, it says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. And that doesn't mean we run around like pointing at people and say, you're an abomination, you're an abomination. You know, it's, that's not the idea here, but God does have a standard, right? And his standard doesn't shift and change with the cultural tendencies and trends of our age. Now, speaking of those trends, 
This is um, Will Smith's son, um, Jaden Smith. And he has now become, as a actual male, not, you know, gender dysphoric, you know, transgender, all of this. He's just, he's just a young man, a, a boy, a teenage boy. But he is the new face for Louis Vuitton's women's wear. And so directly against what we read here, with God's standard, our culture says, no, we're going to wear whatever we want to wear. We're going to push the boundaries of every sort of weirdness that we can find. Now, it's a cultural attack, absolutely, but there's also a physiological attack because there is an increasing number of people who are going and, and feeling this way and that and experimenting in this way and that, talking about bisexuality and, and transgender and all of these things. And you're going, why are these things on the rise? Part of that certainly is part of the programming. When children from age five are put in kindergarten at a public school and they're taught, Heather has two mommies and this is you know, the, an appropriate way to do things, all the way from that early childhood, it does start to manipulate the way that they perceive themselves, and this kind of thing is celebrated, and this is how you can you know, become more independent and individual and all that. I get that, but you know what? There's also a physiological attack. Are you familiar with the endocrine system within the human body? The endocrine glands release various hormones, androgens, estrogens being two classes of predominantly male, predominantly female hormones. Now, of course, both sexes have some of each, androgens and estrogens, but in vastly different quantities, of course, which, which is what makes somebody feel and be more masculine or feminine in the way that their brain works, in the way that they obviously develop physiologically in the womb and on, and on through. And so recently, within the food supply and within the environment, there's been an upswing in what they call xenoestrogens and other sorts of endocrine system disrupting hormonal Factors that, that go into our bodies, and for example, when you have a bunch of hormones in the meat, and they, 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 put, they, they make the cows fat and the chickens fat, and, and you know, they, they, they help them to grow, and they shoot them up with antibiotics and all this crazy stuff. Have you ever read, by the way, in uh, Ministry of Healing and other places about how we're seeing an increase in the, 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 the unhealthfulness of meat and how it's going to become just so diseased and so messed up? So just a, a word to the wise there. You know, guys sometimes go, I'm going to be a real man and eat this big old steak, right? When you don't realize that actually that has hormonal imbalances and it's, some, it's for many men, xenoestrogens will feminize them, will have them taking on other characteristics that are not normal for their physiology and so on. So that's part of it. So we want to make sure to try to get as healthy and, and keeping those toxins out of our, out of our lives. But, but also, people are, are pushing this as sort of the new rights agenda, like uh, Target, for example. You, you probably heard the more recent story about Target. I don't even have a slide on it yet, but the more recent one is that they, um, they've opened up restrooms. This is like the, the, the headline news every week is about restrooms and who's going to use what restrooms. I went, what in the world is going on in our society? But of course, they, they didn't want to offend anybody. And so they, they said, we're no longer going to have a boy's clothing section and a girl's clothing section because some people might not identify as one or the other or there's some confusion and dysphoria in there. And you know what? We just need to get rid of this gender binary way of viewing things and this idea that there's two genders. No, there's like in, in surveys in UK high schools, like, what gender are you? There's like 20 options now. And on Facebook, what's your sexual orientation? It's like, um, it's a scale. It's a sliding scale on where I'm going to land. No, the Bible says God made them male and female, right? And so when gender says, or sorry, when uh, Target says, that should be the new nickname, I guess, but uh, when Target says, we're no longer going to label things as boys and girls' toys or clothes, 
uh, that, that's pushing forward that agenda, as you see also in the bathroom controversy. Now, by the way, I visited this organic restaurant a while back, and it was a little bit more of like a you know, progressive type of restaurant where they do value health, and we can find some common ground there. And I like connecting with those people on those issues. And uh, you know, more of a secular, agnostic, or spiritualist sometimes angle that they come at it from. But I noticed that in this, in this restaurant, they had two restrooms, but they were both labeled as male or female, or gender neutral. And I'm going, two restrooms usually are male and then female, and then if there's a third, sometimes you'll have like a you know, unisex restroom or a family restroom or something. But I've never seen it with two restrooms, both being neutral. So I went up to the person behind the counter, and I said, I kind of played it up a little bit not to reveal all my cards and you know, uh, get labeled as some sort of you know, fundamentalist Bible-thumping person and uh, have my food come out a little different than I'd like or whatever. But I said to the lady, I said, um, you know, I noticed that you guys have the two restrooms and they're both labeled as just male or female. Is that, you know, an effort to um, be sensitive to the transgender community and so on? And she got this look on her face, like deadly serious. And she goes, yeah, we are definitely not the kind of restaurant that would put male on one and female on the other. Like that would be the most offensive, like rude, horrific, evil thing you could do. I'm going, wow, we do live in a weird and interesting time. I visited that restaurant again and asked somebody else the same question. I said, you know, why do you have those that way? And she, she goes, oh, absolutely, that's why. And so, yeah, that's double confirmed there. But, you know, they take it even further in Canada. Canada sometimes is a, a couple years ahead of us. Did you know that on, in Ontario government, uh, their, their government forms, they have removed, talk about family, public enemy number one, you may not say mother or father on their forms anymore. They remove that. And it's guardian, guardian one, guardian two. Mother and father could offend people. So we can't have mothers and fathers anymore. That's for real. I know that's, you're just looking at that like, seriously? How is this possible? We live in crazy times indeed. We're in the last days. I don't know how much crazier can get before Jesus would come. Uh, the, um, oh, this is a little crazier. Here you have Kansas University Student Senate. They said, we realize that we live in, a, in the genderless future now, and anybody that hears, anybody that has you know, gender confusion for themselves, and then they hear the word he or the word she, it might hurt their feelings. And so we're not allowed to, on the Kansas University Senate board uh, discussions, we're not allowed to say any words like he or she, or him or her, no, no masculine or female pronouns. Now, a good thing that none of them speak, sp speak Spanish, because in Spanish, just, you know, verbs or nouns are, you know, masculine and feminine nouns, and so you're going to have to just abolish Spanish, I guess, in order to do away with these, what they call microaggressions. If you say he in the presence of a person that's struggling with these issues, this is called a microaggression, which, by the way, from a political philosophy angle, that word is an important word. Aggression is an act of infringing on somebody else's life, liberty, and property. And that is traditionally, through common law and history past, always a criminal act. And they're appropriating that word and bringing it now into the political correct dialogue to say it's a microaggression. It's a very key word because we're going to look at legal issues that are coming down the pike on this issue. Now, how about Boston, Massachusetts? A Catholic school uh, hired a man and they did not realize he was to work in their, um, in their cooking department, their kitchen, and they didn't catch the fact that he was homosexual, and they hired him. But then once they found that out, they said, well, we really would rather not have you know, somebody who's promoting that lifestyle working here with our students, and we're trying to teach something different. Well, he sued, and the school was fined with a $135,000 fine. And you've heard about the baker who says, you know what, I can't really, in good conscience, do a, you know, a gay wedding cake because I don't believe in that, right? And we have had, we had, 
freedom of conscience in a free society to be able to say, you know, we'll part ways and, and you can do what you do and we'll do our thing over here. And, and, but no, now there's lawsuits and there's coercion and force employed to take away the freedom of religion and the religious liberties. Those, um, there, there was a, a family who had a farm and it was like a, like a you know, decorative type of farm where they would host um, wedding receptions and they, they refused a homosexual wedding reception. And as a part of that, they were sued and $13,000 later, they, they were fined for refusing that. Now, in the United Kingdom, it gets even more interesting where they're removing all, or they're, they're, they're moving to register all Sunday schools so they can observe what's happening in Christian settings to make sure that there isn't hate speech going on and these sorts of things. Oh, I was just talking with a friend, um, Josiah is his name, from Wachita Hills, the uh, uh, canvassing director down there, and how they were actually prohibited in a town in, 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 um, near, near Wachita Hills uh, College in Arkansas. They were prohibited from going door-to-door canvassing and selling books, right? And so religious liberty is under attack, not just with this gender and, 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 and family issue, but a whole bunch of different um, examples. Now, how about this one from, speaking of religious liberties, this was reported by the website, The Daily Caller, a news agency, It says, the University of Texas at Austin Police Department issued a disorderly conduct citation to an outdoor preacher on Tuesday after students complained that his message had offended them. The preacher, who was, and by the way, whether whether his words were offensive or not isn't so much the issue, but do you have the right to preach something that somebody might be perceiving as offensive? Let's take a look. The preacher, who was standing just off campus, recorded his interaction with several university police officers who explained that it was illegal for him to offend the students. Here's the conversation. The preacher says, does freedom of speech, in other words, does the First Amendment, protect offensive speech? And the officer says, it doesn't matter freedom of speech. Someone was offended. That's against the law. Now, the preacher asks to clarify. He says, it's against the law to offend somebody? And the officer says, yes. So we once upon a time had the idea of freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, and you'll hear things you disagree with, and it's water off a duck's back, and we all can be grown-ups here and move on and believe what we believe and and exercise our, our, our religious liberties. But now, apparently, it's becoming illegal to offend somebody. Missouri, Missouri University police actually put out an email to the student body, and it said, call the police immediately if you hear or witness incidents of hurtful speech or, or hateful speech or actions. So if you hear anything where somebody's feelings might be hurt, call the police. I don't know what to say about that. We just got to move on. Okay. The university tells students to report incidents of discomfort. That's just another example. We don't want anybody to have discomfort. Now, I want to say as an important disclaimer, the much more important thing than understanding religious liberties correctly is making sure that we are not deliberately and overtly and intentionally being provocative and caustic and rude and offensive and hateful, right? Um, so when we say we have, to, we have to defend freedom of speech no matter what kind of speech it is, as a principle of religious liberty, that's important, but also it's much more important to ask ourselves, are we living in a Christ-like way, because that's, uh, that's, that's how we reflect the love of God to the world. But I'll tell you something. There was a, there was a um, rather, um, what you might say, provocative event that took place last year. After the Supreme Court ruled that no state in America may prohibit homosexual marriage, that was the Supreme Court decision. Nationally, every state must accept that now. Do you remember what they did on the White House? They put the rainbow right up there, right? 
And this is, I think, that this has tremendous prophetic implications. This is not only about religious liberty. This is not only about the attack on the family. This is also a precedent-setting thing where you're seeing deliberate, like, in-your-face, trying-to-rile-people-up kind of stuff like that, whether the rainbow flag is imprinted upon the, the White House or when they publish the Queen James Bible. This is not made up where they change all the verses about homosexuality to defend it, and they add words to the Bible, like in Leviticus, which says, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind, as it, it is an abomination. The Queen James says, thou shalt not lie with mankind as womankind. In the temple of Molech, it is an abomination. So they just add the words, in the temple of Molech, to completely misconstrue the meaning of the text. And you can see the Hebrew there, transliterated, there's nothing there about in the temple of Molech, but this changes the meaning of it, doesn't it? This means, well, you can engage in this behavior as long as it's not in the temple of Molech. Wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, do not do it, period, right? So again, deliberately provocative, where, where it, it takes us to a point where you kind of have this coalescing of this just rabidly, you know, reactionary group who are going, you know, we need to take our, uh, our, our communities back and, the, and, and, and this, this group over here. And then over here, you've got this movement of we have to stamp out all hateful fundamentalism. In fact, listen to what the Pope said about this. The Pope, the current Pope, Jorge Bergoglio, also known as Pope Francis, said a fundamentalist group, although it may not kill anyone, although it may not strike anyone, is violent. The mental structure of fundamentalists is violence in the name of God. So what he just said was a non-violent, non-combatant believing, fundamental Bible believing group is a violent group. Do you see where this is going, prophetically speaking? Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is talking about us in the end. And right now, you have the precedent set with crazy, radical, jihadist, demon-possessed, insane, suicide, mass-shooting people, right? And then that's going to be imprinted upon and projected upon others in the future where it's like, we can't let any more of those those reactionary fundamentalists arise because you see what that can do in the context of religious fervor. Man, prophetic implications indeed. Kathleen Taylor, a neuroscientist, says religious fundamentalism could be treated as a mental illness. So not only a violent group, but a mental illness. Let me read some quotes from her, from her speech. She says, One of the surprises may be to see people, meaning in the near future, we will see people with certain beliefs as people who can be treated. Someone who has, for example, become radicalized to a cult ideology. We might stop seeing that as a personal choice that they have chosen, and we may start treating it as some kind of mental disturbance. In many ways, it could be a very positive thing because there are no doubt beliefs in our society that can do a whole lot of damage. So you see the direction this is going, right? In fact, there was a news report out where they want to, from the federal government on down, have every child 12 years old and over have, have mental screenings every year. And I remembered back in the early part of my teaching career in 2002 when I was a brand new teacher, this, this thing called the New Freedom Initiative was launched where they said we want universal mental health screenings for every child in America. And then we can eventually be diagnosing a cult ideology of fundamentalism. This is a violent group here. We've got to raise a red flag. And this might sound like some sort of dystopic future. This sounds impossible. But folks, remember the kind of world we're living in today. You would, Two years ago, you would have thought, that's insane. That's impossible. That would never happen. And now we're seeing it all happen, right? 
How about this one from Hillary Rodham Clinton's It Takes a Village book. She says, imagine a country in which nearly all the children, it's like this glowing uh, utopian vision of the future, nearly all the children between the ages of three and five attend preschool with sparkling classrooms, with teachers recruited and trained as childcare professionals. More than 90% of French children between ages three and five attend free or inexpensive preschools. Even before they reach the age of three, many of them are in full-day programs. Before the age of three, two-year-olds in full-day state custody programs with sparkling classrooms and state-trained teachers. It's such a wonderful, happy thing. No, this is the most insidious, dark destruction of the family you can imagine. Sounding so nice, right? Oh, man. Oh, so much to say on that one. But um, textbook sales leader says National Common Core is, quote, all about the money. This is another one of these hidden camera video things. And this guy, by the way, they have to engage in deception in order to get these. So I do not endorse that, just as a quick disclaimer. But this, uh, this journalist gets this um, top sales executive for one of the top uh, textbook publishers to open up and say what she really thinks. And um, she says in, in, the, uh, in the interview, uh, I hate kids. And she says, I'm in it to sell books. Uh, she says, don't even kid yourselves for a heartbeat. You don't, you don't think that the educational publishing companies are in it for education, do you? No, they're in it for the money. She says, I hate kids. She's one of these salespeople. Pretty interesting there. But remember, the effort is to get them young. In fact, that's the title under the christiannews.net headline, Get Them Young. Evolutionists praise new book teaching children about their grandmother, Fish. He says, um, aren't kids, uh, an NPR journalist asks him, aren't kids uh, too little to be taught about evolution? And he says, my answer is no, not too young. We all know by now that more than 40% of Americans say that God created human beings in our present form in the last 10,000 years. Oh, this dismal situation cries out for big efforts in science education. Science education. Put that in big fat scare quotes. He says, there's hard evidence to show that the storybook route can be effective in kids' mastery of evolutionary skills. So we're going to get them young, he wrote on his blog. Now, this one really, really, really rocked me to my core, okay? I've been studying trends in, 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 in history. That's, that's just what I did for a living for years and studying political science and history and economics and all this. And you read government documents, and some of it's like pretty eye-opening, like, wow, they actually wrote that and said that. And man, that's actually the policy. When I came across this one, I literally got chills, and my jaw hit the floor, figuratively speaking. It was called the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Department of Education Draft Policy Statement on Early Childhood Family Engagement, and they call it from the early grades, early years to the early grades. Now, what in the world is that? <laughs> A lot of, lot of big, big words and jargon. It's sometimes kind of hard to read like public policy statements from the Department of Education because they use a whole lot of you know, jargon and terminology and big academic you know, ways of explaining things. And a lot of the time, it sounds very innocuous. It sounds very harmless because it's bathed in this very you know, official-sounding language. But when you scratch under the surface of this, about a millimeter, let me give you some quotes out of this draft policy statement that came out just last fall. Uh, when, I, when I read through this, I'm highlighting, highlighting, highlighting. I'm like, this is code for that. I know exactly what they're going for here. There. Now, here's where the quotes come in, okay? They call it family engagement, where the state and the county ISD and the local social services of the state will, quote, engage families. Now, that might sound nice. Like, we want to get engaged in, you know, a dialogue, in a relationship, but time out. 
we got to be careful who our children and our families are forming open relationships with because there could be an insidious aim at play that could, that could play out in the future. In fact, they write in the, book, in, the, in the document, family engagement begins not at age five anymore when school starts or four when preschool starts or three like the French do it and the It Takes a Village book dreamed of doing. No, family engagement begins prenatally. And they said that there is to be a relationship between the officials and the parents, a formal partnership with social services and mental health consultants. And they said that there will be an equal partnership between the state and the parents in the raising of the children. Now I go, wait a minute, equal partnership? I don't think so. But, but I also ask the question, is it really equal? Like who's the head in this relationship really? Well, in the document it says that the state will include parents in the rearing of their children. So who's the head in that relationship? Yeah, this is not really an equal partnership after all, is it? It's just called that. In the document, it says that they will conduct periodic home visits, that professionals and specialists and mental health consultants will ensure constant monitoring of children's social, emotional, and behavioral needs, and that they will even be overseeing the diet, making sure that the food is, quote, nutritious as they define it, of course. They put special emphasis on early childhood because that's where the gap is. That's where they're missing. Parents actually are raising their children till like age four and having some, you know, autonomous uh, influence on them, exclusive influence on them. And so they say we want to get them very early, prenatally and on up. And the goal is preparing children for school. After all, we have over two million homeschoolers floating around and they're totally out of our grasp here. And by the way, I, I'm painting this as a nefarious thing because that's what it is, but that doesn't mean every person involved is necessarily out in some evil plot to like indoctrinate our children with evil things. That will be the end result, and that is part of the reality very much. But I don't mean to pin this on every social service person or you know county ISD employee. Most of them don't wake up in the morning reading this document going, yes, we're going to do this. But the plot is still there, and it indeed is of the devil. So continuing on, then, then preparing them for school and transitioning them into kindergarten fostering positive attitudes towards school. So hopefully they have not attended Scott Ritzema's series called Schooled and learned all about the nefarious aims of modern schooling and the agenda to indoctrinate the children and to warp their minds because we're supposed to give them a positive attitude about the local public school. That where they will have, the parents will be taught the learning goals and the curriculum and the assessments and the instructional approaches. And this will all come down from prenatally on up through the early grades, then transition them into that public school where get them young, as the evolutionist said, right? Wow, okay, so that was an eye-opener. Now, what does this all have to do with prophecy, though? You know, we see these moves afoot. We see things going on with the, uh, the provocative moves like we saw with the White House being plastered with the red, white, and blue. You know, where is this? Or not the red, white, and blue. I said that incorrectly. With the rainbow flag of the, uh, the, the gay agenda. Where is this all going to take us in the near future? Well, let's look at history because sometimes history repeats itself and it's kind of like a tire with its tread and, and the tire rolls over like this and you look back and you see that was kind of the trend of what the, what the tread looked like in the past. So that next time this thing rolls over it might look kind of like that again well in the 60s and 70s there was an attack on the family right there was a controversial supreme court decision that said you know legalize abortion and that got you know the christian right really up in arms and then there was also a cultural movement called the you know the countercultural revolution and free love and the hippie movement and all that and so there was a cultural degradation and a controversial supreme court decision does that sound kind of like our day 
We're living in like part two of this in the 2000 teens. Supreme Court decision last year on gay marriage and definitely an attack culturally taking everything into total moral relativism and totally denying the existence of gender, the biblical marriage and everything. So cultural attack, legal changes. What happened after the 1960s and 70s? Well, the 1980s came around. And this was the emergence of what was called the religious right or the Christian coalition. The, the, the Christian right emerged and they had a whole lot of correct things to say like, you know, this is wrong, what's going on in society? But uh, from certain sectors of this movement, from this wing of the reactionary political spectrum, certain sectors started saying things like, we're going to take America back for God by politically enforcing God's law. Oh, our red flags go up right there, don't they? Like, we agree biblically and morally on what's correct, but what sorts of methods do we use to foresee God's ways merge into society? Evangelism, right? Soul to soul, person to person, person, family transformation. But there are some taking their cues from the dark ages that we're going to use coercive force and pressure and the laws of the state to enforce morality. That would violate freedom of conscience in the First Amendment and ultimately bring us to this. Do you ever hear this statement in 2000? Actually, I think it was 15, 2015. We are slowly eroding, said Senator Sylvia Allen. We are slowly eroding religion at every opportunity we have. And that's correct. Gotcha. Yeah. Probably, she says, though, we should be debating a bill requiring every American to attend a church of their choice on Sunday to see if we can get back to having a moral rebirth. Do you think that's the biblical way to have a moral rebirth? To pass laws forcing everybody to attend church on Sunday. If you've read Revelation 13, you know that this is coming. And it's coming perhaps nearer than we ever thought. So what does the Bible say about all these things? You know, we've seen what the culture says about it. What does the Bible have to say about it? Well, it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him, he, him. Male and female created he, them. Take a look at this statement from Ephesians 5. There is a difference between male and female, between husband and wife. Okay, it says, wives love your husbands and husbands love your wives. Is that what it says? No. Does it say wives respect your husbands and husbands respect your wives? Is that what it says? No. By the way, should husbands respect their wives? Yes. Should wives love their husbands? Yes. But what, how does the Bible put it? Where's the emphasis placed? Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Isn't that something? There's a difference. There is absolutely a difference. Take a look at this statement for Testimonies, Volume 1. The husband is the head of the family, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, that's some politically incorrect hate speech right there, right? In our culture today, this is unacceptable, but it's true, and we've got to hold to it. It says, And any course which the wife may pursue to lessen his influence and lead him to come down from that dignified, responsible position is displeasing to God. It is the duty of the wife to yield her wishes and will to her husband. By the way, that means under God's authority. That doesn't mean he is in the position of God, but you got that. Both should be yielding. So got that, guys? Like, you know, that's what it means to be Christian is to be humble and yielding and self-sacrificing. But the word of God gives preference to the judgment of the husband. And it, is not, it will not detract from the dignity of the wife to yield to him whom she has chosen to be, the, the, to be her counselor, advisor, and protector. The husband should maintain his position in his family with all meekness, yet with decision. And we have a hard time getting both of those right. We either turn into passive man and we have no decision and firmness and leadership and strength, or we become this like dictatorial maniac and you know I, I'm going to rule with an iron fist. 
No, we've got to get this thing right. But there is a difference. Did you see there's a difference? Even the science is telling us there's a difference. Some scientists are willing to say things that are super politically incorrect because they're like, it's just the science. I'm just a scientist, right? Some. I like this one. Uh, He's uh, Stephen B. Johnson, and he says the following. The genetic differences between the sexes are hundreds of times more significant than the difference between the races, for example. You can't look at an fMRI of someone and say, that's an African-American brain or that's a Caucasian brain. But you can differentiate between a male and female brain. You see, there's a difference between male and female, and not just with the anatomy in reg- with regard to the, the, the sexual reproduction, but also with the brain. But then there was this, uh, this headline. I, I scan the news headlines, and I sometimes come across ones like this. I'm like, okay, they have in one fell swoop totally overturned everything we knew about gender in the brain? The, the headline says, thank you, Cindy, I appreciate that. The headline says, scans prove there's no such thing as a male or female brain. But then if you read the article, this is one of the lines in the article. If a neuroscientist was given someone's brain without their body or any additional information, they would still probably be able to guess if it had belonged to a man or a woman. (laughs) Okay? Scans prove there is no such thing as a male or female brain. No, the science is in very early in the womb, the presence of a Y chromosome triggers a burst of testosterone that makes the boy's development in his brain different from a girl's. At 26 weeks pregnancy, the disparities can be seen in an ultrasound. The corpus callosum in the brain, I have an image of that in a moment, but it, 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 it's, it's the bridge, the nerve tissue between left and right, stronger connections in the female brain, totally debunked the ideas of the 60s and 70s that there's no difference between men and women, male and female. Baby girls in sociological studies are found to be more interested in more. This isn't like a rule, like absolutes black and white, but girls more interested in smiling, communicating, people, and security. Boys more interested in objects, actions, and accomplishments. Boys tend to have more developed parietal lobes where they use three-dimensional movement, throwing and catching balls and things like this. And again, this is not to me, this isn't a moral issue, like you shouldn't throw a ball to a girl. Don't take this to an extreme, but we do see a distinction and a difference there. We also see those of, oh, that, that's a, that's, I want to come back to that one later, but within girls' brains, the, uh, what, what they call the, the verbal spatial areas of the brain, or the, the, the verbal left and right areas of the brain are more developed in girls. Verbal development by age three is more, more prominent in girls on average than boys. And by the way, if, if, if uh, women have more developed verbal areas of the brain than men, is it any surprise that on average you see women using more words in a given day than men? That's just, that's just how God made us. And that's not like if you're a guy who talks a lot that makes you feminine or something. Let's not take this to extremes, okay? I don't think I need to say that anymore, but you got the idea there. Um, but isn't it interesting that God gave women the, the role of, of birthing the baby, of nursing the baby, of taking care of that small child till age three? Because who's the baby going to hear more words from, mother or father? Mother. And, and verbal development is huge for early childhood development. And so there you go, God's design the scientists even acknowledge it. Daniel Amen says, there's not one human society. Now, this guy has looked at like hundreds of thousands of brain scans, more than anybody else. And he says, there's not one human society where men and women are, or where men are primary caretakers for kids. Men and women are wired differently. Women have a larger emotional brain. 
It doesn't mean that men are not essential in child rearing or that they won't help. They just have different roles. Better bonding taking place with mother and so on. So this is very, very beautiful to see God's plan in action. That's the, the middle part of the brain, that corpus callosum. And also you read also from Martha Bridge Denkla that uh, females seem to have language functioning in both sides of the brain. This is that article again, the one that says, proven that there is no th such thing as male or female brains. It says sex differences in brain structures do exist. So that's another quote showing that all of those things that have been discovered still are, the verdict is in on that. Ruben Gurr says, most of these differences are complementary. They increase the chances of male and females joining together. It helps the whole species. You can hear his, his uh, evolutionary bias there, but he's saying these are complementary differences. Isn't that beautiful how God made them male and female, made a helper suitable for him, and so on and so forth. Now, um, this was a funny one when I, when I came across this. When a man's brain is resting, okay, this guy's not sleeping, he's just kicking back and resting, okay? He's listening to the birds sing and the, the water lap up upon the shore of, uh, beside his dock there, enjoying the sunshine. When a man's brain is resting, his brain is 70% inactive. So 70% is just not doing anything, okay? When a woman's brain is resting, her brain is 90% active. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing difference. Huh. And God made this so beautifully. When a man exercises, it wakes up his sometimes, you know, overly restful brain where it's like, you know, okay, now I'm engaged and ready to do something, right? And when a woman exercises, it can calm down what might become a, a tendency to, you know, anxious feelings and overly active. It, it calms that down. So women are tendency, tendency to have more active brain than rest than men, and then, and then it flips, right? Isn't that kind of cool how that works? How about this one? The Lord has constituted the husband the head of the wife, to be her protector. He is the house band of the family, binding the members together, even as Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the mystical body. Let every husband who claims to love God carefully study the requirements of God in his position. Christ's authority is exercised in wisdom and in all kindness and gentleness. I like that part, in gentleness. Jesus was was a true man in that respect, wasn't he? So let the husband exercise his power and imitate the great head of the church. Now, by the way, I've had a couple of quotes about, about what it means to be um, men. And uh, those quotes were pulled from a seminar I did for GYC this past year called Biblically Correct, How to Be Male in the 21st Century, so on biblical masculinity. A lot of the stuff on, 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 on woman, womanhood and femininity is in raising the remnant, and so I comment a lot on that, on that, that nurturing role. And that doesn't even mean just for moms, that, that, that when, when it says be mothers and fathers in Israel, right? To have that role of, of, of caretaking, of blessing, of serving others. And that's why you find so many more women in, in caretaking industries of, of, of child rearing and of caring for the elderly and so on because that's a special gift but again don't feel that like if you're a guy who hangs out a lot in his right brain and you're like but i'm supposed to be just left brain to be a real man no 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 let's not make these things absolute rules these are tendencies within the genders and god has made every individual unique as well and so i like to talk a lot at least when I'm up front. When I'm at home just kind of hanging around, it's like, you know, I, I don't do as much. But uh, let's not worry so much about fitting within that. But I want to close with something really, really cool, okay? This, is, this said uh, that the husband is to be the protector, right? So you got this, this, this impulse to, to be this, this strong person in the family. And little boys can catch that. It's like wired within their DNA, right? It's right, wired within their, you know, their, their brain and the way that they're built. And this story from Christian News just touched my heart so much. It goes like this. A little boy in California recently stood up to a man 
after witnessing the stranger catcalling and cursing out a woman who was out for a run. The woman happened to be secular singer-songwriter Julia Price, who shared her story on Facebook last week, this was last fall, in explaining how much the child had made an impression on her. She explained that when she was out for a run on November 18, a man began loudly catcalling at her, sexy lady, hey, 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 sexy lady. Well, Price ignored the man and kept on running, which in turn made the catcaller angry. He began to curse her out, spewing profanities. Price uh, ripped off her headphones, she says, and I was prepared to stand up for myself. But a little boy nearby, only identified as James, was watching the incident as he walked with his mother and younger sister. James spoke up to defend Price, who was just a stranger to him, thinking that a man should always protect a woman. Hey, that's not nice of you to say to her, and she didn't like you yelling at her. You shouldn't do that because she's a nice girl, and I don't let anyone say mean things to people, James declared to the, to the man. She's a girl like my sister, and I will protect her. The man who had been eating lunch outside then became embarrassed and gathered his items to leave. Price asked the mother if she could hug the child to tell him thank you. I told him how grateful I was for him, she recited. He just shrugged and said, well, I just wanted to make sure your heart was okay. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, God's design. I mean, that's compelling to anybody, even a secular singer-songwriter. Maybe she's out there promoting all these other things, but when she sees it face-to-face, it's like, this is a beautiful thing. This boy understanding a little bit about God's design. And that's not the only way to express our, our unique gifts and our individuality, but I found that to be an inspiring story that we could close with today on a positive note as we see our culture just crumbling around us, right? And let's gather our children in. Let's teach them God's ways and model what it means to be a true family because right now, the family is public enemy number one. And if the devil can tear down the family, he can tear down the souls and the salvation of children and those that they would reach with this final message. But our children... As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and we will stand strong for truth in the last days, not in a deliberately and intentionally obnoxious way, but in the most loving and truthful way, speaking truth always in love, knowing that when Jesus comes again, he will not say, did you do a good job fitting in with the culture around you and pleasing others and meeting their expectations? He will say, well and done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in the little things and now I will put you in charge of the bigger things. But there will be also those who he says, they come to him at the end and they go, Lord, Lord, we did your work and we were Christians and we we cast out demons and did all these things. And he will look at them and say, I never knew you. You practiced lawlessness. So so much of our world, even the self-proclaimed religious world, knows nothing of God's law and it is our job to maintain that standard of biblical truth and to never waver from that. Let us rededicate ourselves to that and to our families and to the truth of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the design that you have put into our families to reflect your character, to reflect reflect so much about the Godhead and about what it means to be like Jesus. May we be that way to our children. May we teach our children the truth so that they would not be carried away into these shifting sands of moral relativism and, and absolute insanity. And Lord, we know that Though our culture is going mad, prophecy is being fulfilled. And for that, we celebrate the nearness of your soon coming. 
We, we, we agonize over the degradation and the, 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 the sin and darkness that is enveloping our land. But we also celebrate that we can see you soon. May we do the work and please empower us with, with the inspiration and with the motivation to do your work, to hasten your coming so that all of this pain and suffering and deception and confusion can come to an end and we can be in the light of the heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.